0: Welcome I'm Eric Fleming host of a moment with Eric Fleming the podcast of our time I want to personally thank you for listening to the podcast if you like what you're hearing then I need you to do a few things First I need subscribers. I'm on patreon at patreon.com slash a moment with Eric Fleming Your subscription allows an independent podcaster like me the freedom to speak truth to power and to expand and improve the show Second Leave a five-star review for the podcast on the streaming service you listen to it. That will help the podcast tremendously. Third, go to the website, momenteric.com. There you can subscribe to the podcast, leave reviews and comments, listen to past episodes, and even learn a little bit about your host. Lastly, don't keep this a secret like it's your own personal guilty pleasure. Tell someone else about the podcast encourage others to listen to the podcast and share the podcast on your social media platforms because it is time to make this moment a movement. Thanks in advance for supporting the podcast of our time. I hope you enjoy this episode as well. the moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. So, um, I'm a little late this week, but it it turned out that was a good thing because uh I have details and I'm sure there's other podcasts that are going up today as well that have details about um the fourth indictment for the president of the United States, former president of the United States, the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump. Um, And it kind of hits home because I'm based here in the Atlanta area. And so I stayed up late last night to watch The actual indictment um come forth and the press conference and all that um it was something to see and to see somebody that i know that i actually voted for um now taking this national spotlight in doing the job that she asked to 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 do um it's going to be it's going to be an interesting time, and I'll get into details about the indictment uh, in a minute. But I wanted to highlight some things, so I'd ask the people that listen in Ohio to get out and vote. Uh, I asked you as listeners to the podcast to contact people in Ohio that you knew relatives, friends, whatever, to get out and vote no in that special election uh a week ago, and they did uh, it it won by like fourteen points so it was it was a landslide victory in an election that the Republicans in Ohio tried to sneak in on the voters. So one thing I didn't mention, uh, a fact that I didn't mention was that what the Republicans did. Now, what they were trying to do was there's an initiative referendum ballot um, or a ballot initiative. I should say this November that would basically legalize abortion in, in Ohio and the threshold for 110 years has been 50 plus one. What the Republicans tried to do was sneak in their own legislative referendum to say the threshold now will have to be 60% in order for any ballot initiative, ballot referendum to pass, right? Uh, The people rejected that. Well, And it was more than just Democrats that voted against it. There were Republicans and independents that voted against it as well. But what the Republicans did that was even sneakier was the fact that two years ago, they initially had passed a law saying that there would be no referendums in August. (laughs) And then... They decided to do one in August for their own benefit. So again, hypocrisy, thy name is Republican. That's, that's where we are. You know, we'll just try to skew it. But the people have been constantly responding. And I think we're, we're getting to a point now where maybe somebody needs to get the message that you can't play tricks on people if you're going to stand on an issue, stand on it and let the people decide whether they support you or not. If your political party has to resort to tricks and suppression and, you know, just any evil you need to do in order to maintain some sort of power in the American politic, then maybe it's time to reconsider your existence. And that may sound harsh or whatever, but that's where we are. So the people in Ohio did what they needed to do. And so I need the listeners to do something for a situation that has happened in Hawaii. Um, And there's some political issues behind that. There's political issues about climate change. There's political issues about zoning. There's political issues about water use. Um, I I, I really encourage y'all to follow that story. Um, And I know this is a show geared for black people, but the key word and I always say is African-Americans or black Americans. Right. So we're all Americans and i think that's part of you know our our struggle is that we have to be recognized as americans and then as we are being recognized as americans we have to remember we're americans and as we're asking people to join us in our fight we have to help others and so one of the sisters that Follows me on LinkedIn is connected with the King Center. She put up a foundation called the Hawaii Community Foundation uh, that is helping with the folks in Maui with the wildfire. So, this whole town, and I'm probably gonna uh, mess the name of the town up because uh, Lahaina uh, is gone. Uh, they estimate the damage, the property damage at $5.6 billion. The whole town has been wiped out. In a situation where they were bracing for a hurricane. The hurricane didn't happen. However, it got close enough where the winds got to the island of Maui and it spurred on a wildfire that was currently happening, but it wasn't really as big. But the, but the winds from the hurricane that missed the island spurred the fire and basically wiped out this town. And one of the prominent residents of that town was Oprah Winfrey. She, she had a house there. It's all gone. And out of a town of 13,000 people, basically they're all homeless Um, As of today, as of this recording, the death count has reached 99, which makes it the most deadliest wildfire in U.S. history. So Sister West has put up uh, for our attention this, this foundation, the Hawaii Community Foundation, that has created a fund called the Maui Strong Fund. Uh the Maui Strong Fund is providing financial resources that can be deployed quickly with focus on rapid response and recovery for the devastating wildfires on Maui. Uh the foundation uh will not be collecting a fee for the donations. A hundred percent of the funds will be distributed for community needs. Um uh, if you have questions, you can um Contact donor services either through services at hcf hawaii.org or you can call 808 566 5560. Again, the email is services at hcf hawaii.org or 808 566 5560. If you go ahead and reach out and, and donate there, uh, I try to, when situations like that happen, try to find something that I feel will go directly to the people affected. Um, you know, there's the traditional Red Cross and all that stuff. And a lot of the networks and corporations will guide you there. But um, I try to find organizations that historically have been local. And if you want to find out more about the Hawaii Community Foundation, you can go to hawaiicommunityfoundation.org and understand their history and their background and and why uh, people are trusting them to make sure that they get the money to do what they need to do. Um, But, yeah, so that's I think it's important for us to to help uh, if we can in that situation and you know, some people are like, well, you know, we're whipping on it. So let's, let's forget that there are some rich people that live there and let's look at people period. Like I said, it's 13,000 people that have basically lost their homes. 99 have lost their lives. So that means there are relatives that are grieving not only the loss of a loved one, but loss of property. Right. And so, um, this foundation is going to help those folks. And a lot of those folks didn't have insurance, I'm finding out. Uh, So, yeah. Um, uh, Please donate to that. Um, And um, make sure that uh, those people know that there are others that um, understand what they're going through. All right, so I wanted to get that out of the way. Now, let me just say this. We are at a point now where the former president of the United States, the 45th president of the United States, is running for president again he looks like he is going to be the nominee of the GOP, the Republican party for the 2024 presidential election. He is in Iowa now, uh, campaigning. Uh, this is the state fair was this weekend, you know, and so he's in Iowa as, um, all this stuff is taking place. He's, He now has garnered four indictments in four months. Two indictments within a span of two and a half weeks. So with the charges that he's been hit with in Fulton County, his total is that he has 91 felony counts on his name. Ninety one. So, you know, that that sounds like a mob boss, right? That sounds like somebody that, uh, you know, like you would see in the Godfather movies or any other gangster movie, right? Or in real life, you know, when you deal with people like John Gotti and uh, all the other, you know, organized crime organizations that are out there. 91 counts. So in Georgia, uh, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, has basically rewarded Donald Trump in a sense, right? And I say rewarded in a sarcastic way for being viewed as a mob boss. So in Georgia, a tool that is used by prosecutors, especially Fonnie Willis, is the Georgia RICO statute. And uh, so RICO is the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, right? There's a federal RICO, and that was designed really to go after organized crime, right? But Georgia's RICO is much broader, which means that A lot of people. As a matter of fact, she stated in her press statement uh, late last night that she has had eleven RICO cases since she's been in office. Already, out of twelve thousand cases she has prosecuted, Um, eleven of them have been RICO cases, and including the YSL trial dealing with young thug and Gotti and all them. Right. So now number 12 is Donald Trump. And, uh, so him and 18 other people were indicted last night. Among them, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, the guy who used to be the U.S. attorney who used to go after mob bosses with the federal RICO statute now has been charged under the Georgia RICO statute. Uh, Mark Meadows, the chief of staff for the, the last chief of staff of the president, former U.S. congressman. He's one of the 19 uh, couple of the lawyers. Well, I'll say four lawyers that I know. John Eastman who basically was the legal mastermind in in putting this all together uh at least the strategy to try to change the outcome of the election. Uh he even threw out a theory that the Supreme Court summarily throughout uh this term uh Kenneth John Cheesbro uh Jeffrey Clark, who wanted to be over the Justice Department in the last remaining days of the Trump administration, uh, Jenna Ellis and uh, um, Sidney Powell. Now, Sidney Powell and Giuliani were being the lawyers on the camera Making the arguments that the election was stolen and all that, and it led to where we ended up on January sixth with an insurrection, right? But, you know, uh, Powell and Giuliani physically came to to Atlanta to talk with Republican legislators and talk to elected officials um, in certain counties to to deal with trying to figure out a way to change the votes and to set up the fake elector scheme and all this stuff. So, you know, these attorneys are not only facing RICO charges, but they're facing disbarment, right? I think Giuliani has already been disbarred in D.C. I don't know if Powell has been disbarred anywhere yet, but I know they've been talking about her being disbarred. Um, and all of them probably be dis you know if they have a if they are members of the Georgia bar, they'll probably be disbarred i don't I don't know if Giuliani is I think Powell might be i'm not sure uh something I didn't check into, but um because of this particular indictment. That's grounds for being disbarred wherever they are licensed to practice, right? So there's that, and then I think Meadows might be an attorney too. So this this has impact as far as you know, jail time and you know, livelihood. once they served their jail time, uh, in Giuliani's case. If he's convicted, uh, he'll probably spend the rest of his life in jail. Um, Same, you know, with Trump. I mean, these guys are like in their late 70s, early 80s, you know, and uh, so it's, it's a reality that if they're convicted on this charge alone, they could be in jail for the rest of their natural life even though it wouldn't be a life sentence. Right? So anyway, there's 41 counts, including the RICO charge, because the RICO charge brings in everybody. And then there's 41 counts that, um, are tied in. Well, there are 40 other counts that are tied in with that. Uh, Solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer, false statements and writings, uh, solicit, uh, um, let's see, impersonating a public officer, uh, conspiracy to commit impersonating, excuse me, a public officer forgery in the first degree, uh, conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree, um, conspiracy to commit false statements and writings criminal attempt to commit filing false documents uh, conspiracy to commit filing false documents um, criminal attempt to commit influencing witnesses uh, and uh, criminal attempt to com well let's see yeah because several of these charges, you know, there's multiple charges on on several of those uh, influencing witnesses, uh conspiracy to commit election fraud, co- conspiracy to commit computer theft, com- conspiracy to commit computer trespass, conspiracy to commit computer invasion of privacy, conspiracy to defraud the state and and, and perjury. So there, there are multiple, <laughs> multiple charges, right, uh, that have been brought forward. So the, the let me let me read the so you can get a scope of what it is without going through the whole thing because it's ninety one pages. If you want to read it, it's online. I suggest that you do that. Um. But just as succinct as the press conference was, the introduction is very, very succinct and terse. It says defendant Donald John Trump lost the United States presidential election held on November 3rd, 2020. One of the states he lost was Georgia. Trump and the other defendants charged in this indictment refused to accept that Trump lost. And they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. That conspiracy contained a common plan and purpose to commit two or more acts of racketeering active activity in Fulton County, Georgia, elsewhere in the state of Georgia and in other States. And that's kind of the key, right? With the Rico statute is that if Attorney Willis uh, and her team can prove that each one of the 19 defendants committed two of those acts, right? If they get convicted of two of those acts, then they are automatically going to be convicted of the RICO charge. Because that's what you have to prove, that there were multiple activities going on. It wasn't just one thing that they did that it was several things they were doing and Georgia was not really the only place where they were engaging in their criminal enterprise. Right. Um, It has to show that they had been doing some things in other parts of the country, but the only charges that can be adjudicated are the acts that they committed here. But, A RICO statute implies that they were doing stuff in other places, right? And so the next paragraph talks about, and it's entitled, The Enterprise. At all times relevant to this count of the indictment, the defendants, as well as others not named as defendants, unlawfully conspired and endeavored to conduct and participate in a criminal enterprise in Fulton County, Georgia, and elsewhere. Defendants Donald J. Trump, Donald John, John Trump, excuse me, Rudolph, William Lewis Giuliani, John Charles Eastman, Mark Randall Meadows, Kenneth John Cheeseborough, Jeffrey Bossert Clark, Jenna Lynn Ellis, Ray Stalling Smith III, Robert David Cheeley, Michael A. Roman, David James Schaefer, Sean Michael Tresher Still. Stephen Cliffguard Lee, Harrison William Prescott Floyd, Travian C. Cuddy, Sidney Catherine Powell, Powell, Kathleen Alston Latham, Scott Graham Hall, Misty Hampton, unindicted co-conspirators, individual one through individual 30, and others known and unknown to the grand jury constituted a criminal organization. Whose members and associates engaged in various related criminal activities, including but not limited to false statements and writings, impersonating a public officer, forgery, filing false documents, influencing witnesses, computer theft, computer trespass, computer invasion of privacy, conspiracy to defraud the state, acts involving theft and perjury. This criminal org- organization constituted an enterprise, as that term is defined in. OCGA subsection 16-14-3 subsection 3. That is a group of individuals associated in fact. The defendants and other members and associates of the enterprise had connections and relationships with one another and with the enterprise. The enterprise constituted an ongoing organization whose members and associates, associates functioned As a continuing unit for a common purpose of achieving the objectives of the enterprise, the enterprise operated in Fulton County, Georgia, elsewhere in the state of Georgia in other states, including but not limited to Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and in the District of Columbia. The enterprise operated for a period of time sufficient to permit its members and associates to pursue it's objectives. So, ladies and gentlemen, a major case is going to happen in the state of Georgia. I think this case, out of all of them, is the most severe. Um, and this is the one that's going to cause a lot of problems for the former president because he can't pardon himself from this one, right? The insurrection charge that uh, Jack Smith has put out there along with the documents charge, those are both federal cases that if somehow, some way, the American people decide to give Donald Trump another term in office, the first act he's going to do is pardon himself if he is convicted prior to the election or if the trial hasn't happened, he's going to pardon himself from those federal charges. Now in New York state, uh, the deal with the hush money to stormy Daniels, that case is still out there too. And he, he won't be able to pardon himself from that. But you know, the penalty for that, compared to the penalty for Rico Um, is not as severe, but it's still bad, right? I mean, he still has to do jail time. When they asked attorney Willis if they're convicted, is this a charge, is Rico statute, is that a charge where you can do your time through probation? Is it probative? And and she said no. That if you're convicted on the RICO statutes in the state of Georgia, you have to do jail time. You cannot do it via house arrest or anything like that, right? So that's where we are. And I encourage people to follow this. Because she's going on a very aggressive schedule. One, all 19 defendants have to turn themselves in by August 25th. If they do not, then they will be sought after and arrested. They will be extradition and all that stuff, right? So far as the indictments have been rolling, former President Trump and anybody else that has been listed as co defendants in any of these cases have gone in and, and gone ahead and, and turned themselves in and gone through the indictment process. Um, uh the arraignment process, I should say, and and uh you know, and so far there hasn't been any discussion of bail right in Georgia there may be a discussion about bail um, with the Rico statute because as Miss Willis has pointed out, she has done eleven of these cases since she's been d a but her most famous case has been when she was an assistant d a and They charged teachers who conspired to cheat on standardized testing to benefit their students. Uh, She was successful in putting a number of teachers in jail for that. And that was kind of her claim to fame prior to getting elected DA. And so she has experience and she has people on her team who have experience in dealing with Georgia RICO cases. Um, so, you know, if, if, if the Vegas line was out there, the, uh, odds are not in favor of Trump getting off of this one, but, um, they have until August 25th to turn themselves in, uh, go through the process. So somewhere between now and August 25th, we're going to see another media Following of Trump going to the plane, getting on the plane, flying, watching the plane land in Hartsfield Jackson International, that drive on 75, 85 to the courthouse and whatever, right? So just be ready for that. And of course, in Atlanta, <laughs> that means traffic problems. So you probably, in the Atlanta area, you probably wouldn't be paying attention to when Trump makes that decision that he's going to show up because that's going to be a traffic jam, right? It's going to be stoppage, all that stuff. Especially if you're coming south, going into the city, right? Just giving you a heads up on that. Um, But the other thing is that uh, she has stated that she wants to have a trial started within six months And she's even implied that she wants all 19 defendants tried at the same time. Logistically, I don't think that's going to happen either within six months or. um, All 19 being in the same courtroom at the same time, Um, that may be an advantage to the defense. If you have that many defense attorneys in one room right that many defendants in one room so it'll probably be spread out amongst several judges um and again six months is basically her opening bid uh in the negotiation as to when. but the judge will set the the the, the, probably the senior judge in the state of Georgia and the Fulton mm-hmm. County district will, um, set that court date and, uh, determine how many defendants will be assigned to a particular judge to try the case. Uh, I get why she wants to do it because she just wants to have one jury. of 12 to make the determination of these 19 people. But the reality is that that logistically can't happen. What I do think is going to happen is because since Donald Trump has put himself in a position to try to beat the charges by running for president, that his, he, and whatever other group is put together with him will go first. They will have the earliest trial date and then everybody else will fall in. You know, they could do them all subsequent and have several courtrooms tied up, but definitely for sure, whichever group that Trump is in, uh, they're going to do it. And there's a hope that several of these people uh, will go ahead and, and, Make a plea deal, um, especially uh, this one particular guy, uh, Cuddy, because this this is the issue with with Cuddy. Uh It involves the harassment and intimidation of Fulton County election worker, Ruby Freeman. Uh, as you know, Miss Freeman and her daughter on the verge of winning a defamation suit against Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Giuliani has admitted that uh, he lied about them passing a USB card or whatever. Um, And, you know, their role in trying to steal the election for, you know, against Donald Trump. Uh, So, Basically, he made that admission so there wouldn't be any discovery. (laughs) Right. So now it's just a matter of. You know, settling at this point. Um, Members of the enterprise, including several of the defendants, falsely accused Fulton County election worker Ruby Freeman of committing election crimes in Fulton County, Georgia. These false accusations were repeated to Georgia legislators and other Georgia officials in an effort to persuade them to unlawfully change the outcome of the November 3rd, 2020 presidential election in favor of Donald Trump. In furtherance of this scheme, members of the enterprise traveled from out of state to harass Freeman, intimidate her, and solicit her to falsely confess to election crimes that she did not commit. So Cuddy, who... Has a connection with Kanye West, or Ye, as he's called now. Uh, I think he was like his publicist, a PR person, or whatever. Somehow he involved himself in trying to convince Miss Freeman to admit that she had cheated. Of course, she did not, and so uh, him and two others have that specific charge I'm dealing with that. And the the even money is that Cuddy is going to <laughs> try to plead out, right? So that's that's kind of where we are with this, but I wanted to address it since that's the main news story that's hitting today, the same day that this podcast is hitting, uh You know, and and just real quick, guys, um, you know, Miss Willis, the sheriff who I used to work for, um, and others involved have been threatened. Um, I would not be surprised if members of the jury gets harassed, you know, the grand jury gets harassed. Um, you know, so things are going to be tight for at least the next six months for sure. And at least until August 25th, uh, security is going to be heightened. Uh, we recently just had one guy who had been posting threats toward president Biden, uh, basically commit suicide by cop. Uh, as he decided, he was going to get engaged in a gunfight with the FBI, similar to another gentleman. I forget what state he was in. I want to say Ohio. Um, you know, earlier this year, uh, this gentleman, you know, engaged in a gunfight in the FBI, and he lost. Um, and it was almost like he was daring them to come, right? So, you know we have to take whatever threats seriously. And there's jokes about gravy seals talking about <laughs> these, these old fat white guys and all this stuff. Look, it don't take much to pull the trigger of a gun. Okay. It doesn't take a whole lot of physical acumen to do that. Uh, and so we have to be serious about it. Uh, no matter uh how crazy or how extreme sounding these folks are, a threat is a threat. And one of these people has been proven throughout Donald Trump's um, tenure um, that they're serious about it. So I just wanted to, to highlight that. And I just wanted to do half of the show on that because there's another situation that happened prior to the indictment that got some national attention, but I wanted to try to touch on it a little bit on this podcast, and uh, we'll get into that on the other side. (laughs) All right. And so we are back. So before I get into this other uh, story, I wanted to highlight a um, couple of things that I wanted to talk about before that. Um, shout out to the Black Avengers in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, all y'all know or should know about the brawl that took place at the dock, which at one time was a place where they auctioned slaves um, in Montgomery. Um, it is now a recreational dock or whatever. And um, these white folks refused to move their boats so the tour boat could could dock decided to jump the security guard, the black security guard, who uh, was telling them that they needed to move. Uh, Next thing you know, he threw his baseball cap up up in the air, and a multitude of black folks swam, (laughs) dove, ran to his aid. Uh, And one gentleman finished it all off with chair smashing, uh, to the point now where folding chairs are now being sold on T-shirts and uh, earrings and all this stuff. And we joke about it. Um, but I really want to commend these people for coming to the aid of this man. Um, and there were some people that said nobody white. It actually was a, a young white man who worked with with the doc crew who initially had stepped in. And he got literally pushed aside by, by the mob that jumped the security guard. And, uh, you know, it was him and one, one black man who was very, very big, very tall. And he was pulling people off. And as the white mob got bigger, then that's when the other folks intervened. Um, the young brother who swam off the boat that was waiting to dock, he jumped off the boat and swam, to to assist. And by that time, other people were able to gather and you could see the police kind of coming there, but, you know, they, they kind of waited until they were able to safely grab people and pull them apart and all that. But in the meantime, the black folks in Montgomery, uh, unified and, you know, where I don't encourage violence, and you know that this, this podcast has really stressed that, um, you have to defend yourself and for eight, nine white guys to jump a black guy who was doing his job because they were too lazy and too full of themselves to move their boat. Um, you know, I mean, the musician even on the boat was singing to the folks, you know, move your boat, you know what I'm saying? He, I, that song might be a hit on SoundCloud, you know, <laughs> just just keep your eyes open. But um, their rudeness and their boorish behavior kind of feeds into, you know, what Donald Trump and his political ilk want to – play off of and feed into and you know um, I think Jason Aldean has gotten the answer to trying that in a small town now Montgomery is not a small town by any stretch it is the state capital of Alabama but I think Aldean's folks that were using that as an anthem should get the message you try that on black folks and see what happens Right. So I wanted to commend them for doing that. Um, And then part of the reason why I'm late in doing this is because I just had the privilege of attending my 40th high school reunion in Chicago. And. uh, Out of our class, which was over 400 or so. Uh, I say 435 some people say it's 499 I don't know all I know is is that um 67 of us, us have transitioned uh some I knew some I did not um so it was sad and you know to find out who had passed since the last reunion even and um uh, I knew of one, well, I knew of a couple uh, because one sister had passed literally after the last reunion I attended 10 years ago, Um, but to, uh, uh, to see the ones who were still with us and how good they looked and how. Uh, excited everybody was to see each other and there were some people that I really had not seen since I left Lindblom Technical High School um, in 1983 uh, so it was good to see them um, everybody majority of people there looked really really good uh, I mean not just you know physic you know appearance wise but physically You know, a lot of them and, you know, and and this is going to I'm throwing these two stories in as acknowledgments because it's going to tie into what I'm going to talk about. Um, But it was good to be around folks that I've known that I shared at least four years of my life with some, you know, I, I got an additional four years of college. One, you know, I went to elementary school with you know and so it was good to see the folks that were in elementary school together uh as well as high school hanging out with each other uh at the event um in a city that um you know is questions about how long young people are going to live right so the reason why i wanted to uh stress these things is because something happened in Lansing, Michigan and I first got, became aware of it through a viral TikTok video which showed police officers in Lansing, Michigan detaining a 12 year old black kid Um, and the father intervening. So let me read the story. It was written by the sister in the Lansing State Journal uh, named Crystal Nurse. Now, Lansing, Michigan is where Michigan State is, Michigan State University. Um, Basically, I mean, they, they say the school is in East Lansing, but the city of Lansing is primarily home to Michigan State University and uh, so not a small town uh, in Michigan but um, so this this has some significance as to why I wanted to highlight what happened in Montgomery and what happened in Chicago this weekend on personal for me Lansing police said a video circulating online that shows officers detaining a 12 year old boy in handcuffs was a quote unquote unfortunate misunderstanding that stemmed from the foot chase of a suspect wanted in a suspected vehicle theft. The video led to three statements by police and Mayor Andy Shores office by late Friday afternoon. Um, The video appears to show a young black male wearing neon yellow shorts and a white T-shirt being detained by a police officer outside an apartment complex. A man tells officers they are traumatizing his son and the male was put into a police vehicle before later being released to the man who said he was the individual's father. Video posted on TikTok account Carrie 372 has generated millions of views and posts throughout social media with users saying the boy was detained as he was throwing away garbage. The video lasts just more than four minutes. It was not clear where in the city the video was taken. Kid taking out, trash being harassed by police, father defending his son, wrong person, the TikTok poster wrote on Thursday. In a Zoom call reporters on Friday night, lawyers for the family of Tashaun Bernard asked that police take down its Facebook post saying that the photo makes it appear as though the t shirt Deshaun was wearing was white when actually it was gray. The suspect police were looking for was wearing a white shirt, they said. It does not accurately reflect what Deshaun was wearing, said Yana Neal of Gruel Law. They need to take down the post. Lansing police posted an initial explanation on his social media accounts earlier Friday, followed late Friday afternoon by a statement from police chief Ellery Soseby. On Thursday afternoon, our officers were investigating a string of Kia thefts, including a specific one reported on the 3600 block of West Jolly Road with multiple suspects. The first post on Facebook said a witness described as a suspect. The witness described a suspect as wearing neon shorts and a white shirt. Responding officers saw the subject matching this description and attempted to make contact, but the subject fled and ran west into the nearby apartment complex. A different officer was in the area and saw the young man pictured in the viral video wearing a similar outfit and made contact with him. The initial officer was able to respond and clarify the young man in the video was not the suspect who fled earlier. Once this information was obtained, the young man was released and officers continued to search the area. We are including pictures of both individuals. We have blurred both photos to protect the identity of the suspect subjects. A photo of the people involved was posted, blurred out along with the statement. Post on X, formerly Twitter, expressed outrage over the video and the number of officers involved in the incident. Uh, Just a kid taking out the trash has, you know, hyphen America, wrote user Kenny Akers. The city is paying six police officers to arrest a child for throwing out garbage, user Frank Gugliano wrote. I hope someone gets a hold of the young man detained today while taking out the trash because he, quote unquote, fit the description and lift him up. He will need support around him. Robert Thomas wrote on a Facebook post. LPD said they hope to put the situation behind them. Community relations is a top priority for us as a department. From top down, the department wrote, our hope is we can put this unfortunate case of wrong place, wrong time behind us and continue to represent the community that we serve. After 4 p.m., the department released a statement attributed to Sosipi. The officers of Lansing Police Department are working very hard to address the recent car thefts plaguing our city. In doing so, yesterday, officers detained a young man who was wearing similar clothing and in the same apartment complex as an accused car thief who fled from officers on foot. When the officer made initial contact, it was near a trash bin, but it was after he had disposed of any garbage. The young man was then released to his father when eliminated as the accused. The command officer on the scene made contact with the young man's father and explained the situation and apologized for the misunderstanding. I have reviewed the incident and can confirm the officer who contacted and detained the young man was respectful and professional during his investigation. It's unfortunate that incidents like this occur, but through communication and sharing of information, we can help people understand the whole story. We understand that something like this has an impact on all parties involved. As the chief of police, I want to apologize that this incident had such an effect on this young man and his family. I'm asking for the community to consider all the facts of the situation before making a judgment. The relationship with our community has been and will continue to be a top priority for the Lansing Police Department. In late Friday afternoon, Shore apologized to the 12-year-old and his family in a statement. The Lansing Police Department made a mistake in detaining the wrong person during a vehicle theft investigation, Shore said in the statement. The young man was wearing the exact same clothing as the suspect, however, it was quickly confirmed he was not the suspect in question, and he was released. I joined Chief social B in offering my apologies to the young man and to his family. LPD is in contact with the family and providing resources and support for any trauma involved. Our officers do their absolute best to protect Lansing, but in this case, a mistake was made, and we own it and apologize to those affected. As mayor, I again, I once again offer my sincere apology to this young man. Attorneys for the family said Tashaun was taking out the trash at his home when he was approached by an officer holding a gun at his side. The boy was put in handcuffs and placed into the back of a police vehicle. Our client has been traumatized by this incident so much so that young Tashaun does not want to go outside even to get the mail, attorney Rico Neal said. Instead of trying to put the incident behind them, police should have apologized to Deshaun and considered how to make the situation right, the attorney said. Deshaun's father, Michael Bernard, described looking outside and seeing his son in handcuffs. He said his son should not have been subjected to this treatment. The attorney said they were exploring all legal options for the family, including a possible lawsuit. The family wants to ensure that the same situation doesn't happen to anyone else, they said. So let's unpack that, right? We all know how on edge Black Americans and African Americans are in this country with police. Um, We are just three years removed from witnessing George Floyd being murdered. And there have been other homicides committed by police since and even before. And as somebody who has been in law enforcement, I understand that you know in heat of the moment and you're trying to detain a suspect um, you know you have to go on the leads that you are given, where the concern is is that you know, all black people look the same and we're profiled the same and we are trained better than that. Um, now we talked about perceived biases, right? We talked about how some studies have shown that a white officer is quicker to shoot a black suspect with a gun than a white suspect with a gun in training simulations. Right. So that carries over as far as meeting descriptions. Now, is it possible for a 12 year old to steal a car? Yes. If they know how to drive. A lot of 12 year olds nowadays, now in my generation, there were folks that were 12, white, black, whatever, that knew how to drive for whatever reason, especially if you lived outside of a city, right? If you lived in the suburbs or in a rural area, it, it was very possible that you knew how to drive a vehicle, right? Even if it was just an ATV or a tractor or whatever, you were familiar with driving. In this day and age, not so much, right? Nonetheless, officer description, black person, T-shirt, neon colored shorts. What are the odds that this 12-year-old kid had the same outfit on as a guy that they're pursuing in the same apartment complex, right? Right? But as an officer of the law and, and, you know, some people say, well, you know, it's easy for you to say you weren't there. As somebody has been trained to do stuff, you know, in that in that capacity. There are ways that you can ascertain information without. Reaching for your gun. And. Putting handcuffs on people. If you notice that uh, somebody the description is standing by a trash bin, probably want to ask some questions. What are you doing? Uh, how long have you been here? You know, where do you stay? Those kind of things. And once you realize it's a child, then you kind of, you know, you don't totally let your guard down, but you get your hand off your weapon at that point. And then you you just try to gather information. Did you see anybody wearing an outfit that looks like yours running through the neighborhood, right? Um, you don't have to tell them why. You just, you know, you just ask questions. By that time, the father who was washing dishes, right, would have seen the officer just talking to his son and and would have came out and said, what's going on? And the officer would have said, look, you know, is this your son? Yes. Well, we got a report. Somebody fitting this description, you know, was running through the apartment complex. And, you know, so we just wanted to make sure that your son wasn't that guy. And then at that point, the father would have said, well, no, he was taking out the trash I mean, he literally just left the house a few minutes ago. da would have gave him information and said, OK, if you see somebody running around like this, please let us know, right? Because uh, we don't want anything to happen. You know, we don't want, you know, this for whatever this person's doing. You may tell the father, I don't know. You know, if you do it, if you do it in close communication, you don't yell it across the parking lot or whatever. But, you know, you just you walk the child to the father and just basically say, look, this is what happened. Uh, You know, I was the first officer to respond. I saw somebody to fit the description. Once I realized it was a child, I just started asking him questions. No harm, no foul. And the father would have said, "Okay." he may have said something smart, but nothing that would escalate the situation i i I guarantee you because he's just happy that you know his son's okay because you know anytime something's happening you you're trying to figure out that something happened to my son why is this police officer talking to my son he just went out to take the trash now all of a sudden there's a police officer talking to him what's the deal but now if you put the child in handcuffs then you're going to get a totally different reaction which is what happened the father saw his son in handcuffs. He was like, what did he do? He, he just left the house. He he couldn't have committed a crime. He just went into the crime to take out the trash. I mean, you know, and it seems like these folks are, are, you know, if they're not direct immigrants, first generation, because it, it seemed as, um, I detected in the video an accent. right? They didn't talk about that in the story. It's not really relevant, but, In a sense that, you know, people who come to the United States are coming to the United States to better their life. And, you know, that leads to this whole thing about how this movement of black Americans going against black immigrants, you know, it's like in a situation like that, Those officers saw a black person. They thought they had a suspect in stealing a car. They didn't care whether they came from the Caribbean or Africa or East Lansing. All they cared about was they thought they had their man. And six officers responding to that. So that means a call had to be made for backup. And then every officer and probably the officer that was initially chasing the guy all showed up. Right? And by the time all these officers, and there was one black officer in there. Most of the officers were white. There was one black officer in the mix. A female. Um, And by the time she got there, at that point, you know, the father's giving the police the business as far as how he feels about them traumatizing his son. And, you know, there may be some people that say, well, that's, you know, over exaggeration. Uh, No, it's not. And if you ask any of my classmates that grew up in Chicago, (laughs) right. And a lot of them still live there. That was a fascinating thing with me. A lot of them still live in the city. Some went away to college and came back. Others, They just stayed, right? And they will tell you the trauma is real. Uh, Whether, you know, we were all in high school when the two officers got killed and they caught the guys two weeks later on the skyway. I mean, I literally saw the officers laying on the ground coming from school and those two weeks were crazy my dad was a former Chicago police officer and he was uneasy because when they put the sketches out somebody called him and said hey that looks like Eric is he okay you know and, you know, I was going to the store and all this stuff, and I, and I saw police surrounding cars that fit the description. If, they, if you ran a red light or, you know, you're speeding or whatever, you know, multiple police officers for those two weeks, we were going to respond to you. Um, and that's just one incident. I mean, it's always been tension. Right. And it didn't. Well, I should I should say always there has been tension. Right. And it's escalated throughout the years because of the violence that is happening within our own community and toward police officers in the city over these last 40 years. You know. It is has it is escalated to give Chicago this unwelcome moniker, and and one of the things that was beautiful at the reunion was, uh, somebody that I went to high school and college with is now a a a poet, and she was talking about how we we're going to change Shyrock to Shy Jerusalem, right? That you know, and the Bud Billiken Parade, which happened during that weekend, was talking about parading in peace, block by block. Right. So there is an emphasis in the city of Chicago, despite what these Republicans say. There's an emphasis in the black community to bring peace back to the community, a concerted, demonstrative effort. And, and there are all sorts of groups like the Jesse White Tumblers and the South Side Rifle Team and all these groups that have been around for a long time. That have, that have tried to pull in young people and give them positive things to do. All that is happening in a city, and yet still we're deal, still dealing with violence within our community, right? So don't listen to the Republicans. Listen to the people in Chicago. And I had a sister on, uh, Ms. Myrick, talking about efforts that are being made. The new mayor ran on a campaign of bringing peace to the inner city neighborhoods right and and making sure that this gun violence is 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 if at at best just toned down, you know best the ideal scenario would be for it to stop altogether, but so when you hear a story about a twelve year old boy. I can only imagine, you know, and and another thing, you know, in this whole discussion about talking, you know, uh, you know, this division and all this stuff that's being created amongst black people who were born in the United States and black people who are not, you know, just have conversations with the older people. It doesn't matter if they're immigrants or if they're natives of the country. Talk to these older people because we, you know, I was just talking to my dad about what I had talked about in the last podcast about, you know, me realizing that he was basically the same age as Emmett Till. And my dad was just, he just went into about, he said he remembers it, you know, it was vivid. It was something that was instilled in him, you know, coming down to visit. He said that wasn't far because he, like I said, he was in Mount Bayou for summers. And this happened in Money, Mississippi, which is not even an hour away, right, in 1955. It was 10 years before I was born. So just imagine it was Robert Fleming instead of Emmett Till. Then this podcast wouldn't be happening. You understand what I'm saying? So, you know, and, and my aunt, you know, was a year older. than than my dad so it's like they're all around the same age so you know Emmett was 13 this boy that we're talking about is 12 and considering that Tamir Rice was 12 and he was gunned down that trauma is real and at some point it's sometime and you hear me say this a lot The training with police officers has to be thorough and and psychological evaluations have to be given in a frequent basis to officers, especially if you're going to assign white officers in black neighborhoods. That has to happen. There has to be a way to get to real community policing where these officers are known by the community and they know the people in the community to minimize those kinds of incidents. Because, you know, in these rural towns, we if you watch shows like Southern Justice and all this stuff where it's primarily, you know, poor white people dealing with law enforcement, you know, and they and most of them are white, you know, they have these conversations. They know who are the folks that are committing crimes, who have a propensity to make crimes. They know who the drug addicts are. They know uh, who the who the scam artists are. And they go directly to them. They don't just pick random people. You know, they, they, they deal with them. Now, the drawback of that, go back to that Aldine small town BS. You know, it's like if you come in as a black person, in that town, they're automatically going to be suspicious of you, which they shouldn't be. Uh, Because most of these towns have state highways that go through them. So people have to, if they're trying to get to a certain spot, they're going to drive through your town. Right? So you shouldn't just look at black people as suspects all the time. But what's really bad is in cities where You know, the majority of the police departments assigned to those neighborhoods. And they'll say, well, most of the crime is happening there. Maybe, maybe not. The whole purpose of having a police presence is to minimize crime. If people realize that streets are well lit, uh, that there are activities for children to do, uh, if there is a police presence, that's visible and accessible to the community then those are factors and of course if you improve the economic status of the people in the community then those factors weigh into crime going down not six cars showing up to arrest a 12 year old that doesn't help if anything it it provokes reactions like what happened in Montgomery as opposed to calming the situation down. That's escalation, right? Uh, you know, you, you got six cars responding to a kid that's already in handcuffs, right? So what was communicated? You know, it's one thing about the video camera footage, but it's another thing, what was the dispatch call for six officers to show up, Right? Did they think, well, okay, we got the suspect, blah, blah, blah. You know, everybody's trying to get in. And what if it actually was the suspect? What would have happened to that individual with six police officers responding to that? You understand what I'm saying? It's like, you know, kid clearly wasn't armed. It's all right to have a backup, but to have six cars roll up I mean those are the kind of my new things that people look at and they say well you know you might be nitpicking no those are the kind of things that add to the trauma and I want y'all if y'all got time there is this uh, resource that I got hip to there's this young brother Jay Williams Jay who's from Chicago uh, who's in college? I think he's at Illinois State, and he is viral on TikTok. He has made it his mission to challenge conservatives, especially black conservatives, people around his age or a little older who are espousing these Republican MAGA talking points, right? Um, And he literally takes them down intellectually. And one of the things he uses is that he uses this site called Google Scholar, where he can pull down all these studies that have been done about particular topics that these people are just speaking off the cuff on. Right. And, um, and so I used it to, to address this trauma thing and I, I really didn't have the time don't have the time in this podcast to go in depth into the study, but I want y'all to read it. It's called you have the right to exclaim your pain. You have the right to exclaim your pain. It's written by a guy named Alan Eugene Lipscomb. And I am going to try to get this brother on the podcast to go into depth about this study, but it's basically talking about black trauma as it relates to our interactions with the police. Right. And this was done in 2020 in April, 2020. Um, So, you know, it was timely, you know, considering what was happening in 2020. And, uh, I, I, I I encourage y'all to look that up and read it, uh, because what I was able to glean and and, and you know read into it, uh, it's very in depth about uh, our interactions with the police and why trauma exists in the black community because of those interactions. Uh, and I think it's it's worth worth to read if you really want to understand and be able to articulate to your white coworkers or counterparts, whoever you encounter uh, them, wherever you encounter them, I should say, uh, in discussions. And when people talk about, well, why are y'all scared of the police? Right. And he cites historical data and, you know, they have subjects and all that. Um, You know, and I think he's based out of California. Um, So, you know I, I i i encourage y'all to read that but just from my experience and just you know having left my 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 beautiful classmates right who are the same age uh we we saw that and i'm sure that if i had the time and and you know i really kind of provoke them and say, tell me a story that put some trauma in your life in dealing with the police. Majority of them would have had a story to tell. Even if it was just a traffic stop in a rural area. You know? I joke about the story that when I got stopped in a rural part of Mississippi on my way to a party, uh celebrated legislators retirement you know i got stopped and if it wasn't for my legislative driver's license i don't know how that situation would have went i hope that the worst that happened would have been a ticket you know but the demeanor from the time that officer first stopped me to the time he saw the license and realized who he's dealing with was comical to me but that could have been worse had I had just a regular driver's license. And I joked that that was like my secret weapon in Mississippi, you know? But there's only so many black legislators, right? So what about the rest of them? What about the rest of the black people throughout the country, right? 12 year old taking out trash. Next thing you know, six police cars are around him and he's in handcuffs. Yeah, I believe the fact that he doesn't want to go outside. I believe that. And in this day and age where you've got video games and all that, yeah, I'd rather play video games than go outside. I'd rather be in this fantasy world sitting at home in front of a TV or a computer instead of dealing with these real people who just because I look a certain way they're going to make me a suspect I mean <clears throat> excuse me that's real and 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 what can happen is that you'll have citizens like in Montgomery taking a stand and they've proven and it's really kind of a, a, a awakened something in the black community It's like we have to stand up for our people because we feel that we're being attacked not just physically but politically and if we don't do anything what is going to happen how much more trauma is going to be inflicted on us And so I want people to take that as a sign, what happened in Montgomery, that that's going to happen more frequently if the tenor of our politics, the tenor of our society does not change. You know, when you you get the battle cry from Jason Aldean or Toby Keefe or Kid Rock or whoever and try to embolden these folks or even Donald Trump through his true social, trying to embolden these people to take actions that are violent or definitely against the interests of American society toward black people, right? Because Donald Trump is just as guilty as anybody else when he's going after judges and prosecutors who happen to be black. That are going after him for crimes that he committed. Now, I'm not going to be on the jury. (laughs) I guarantee that I'm not going to be on the jury in any of his cases, but, you know, so my opinion is he's guilty of all that stuff, but in the American court system, he's presumed innocent until proven guilty. Nonetheless. I know he did that stuff. He knows he did it. And his way of, quote unquote, defending himself is invoking racial violence. And so he's tone deaf to what happened in Montgomery, but the rest of y'all should not be. And I commended the father for showing restraint. You know, he just basically, you know, he admonished the police officers and told them what kind of trauma they were inflicting on his child by their actions. But that could escalate a lot worse. I mean, we saw in California, sheriff's deputy body slam a woman who was videotaping them arresting her husband for something he didn't do. Right. So. You know, the trauma is real. And I hope Brother Tashan, for the rest of his life, has a more positive experience on being black in America. I can't guarantee it because of where we are right now, but I pray that that happens and i pray that his parents rally around him more than just trying to organize a lawsuit but just trying to instill in him that it's going to be okay and you're going to you're going to be fine but you know you can have the talk and you taking out the trash and you getting arrested i mean how does the talk help you on that right So I just wanted to to highlight that. I hope that um, people who are listening have these conversations. And there's this one sister, um, and I apologize for not remembering her name right off, but she's on LinkedIn, and she's basically reminding folks that the battle is not us to fix. It's white people. They've gotta make an effort and a conscious decision to end racism in the United States as as we know it. They have to make the effort. And as long as you support people like Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump and even people that are brown skinned like Vivek um and Nikki and oh, you know, or deniers like Tim Scott that racism even exists, right? Um, We're still going to have these problems. So it's really up to the white community to make a commitment to fix it. You have to respect authority, especially if it's black. If a black man tells you to move your boat, move your boat. Move it. I don't care how many beers you've had. I don't care how many Trump rallies you've attended. Move your boat. Right? If you, as a white community, learn to respect black people, this country will be much better off. That's all we've really asked for all this time is just respect us. We help build this country. We help give you the lifestyle that you have. We help secure the freedoms that you have. We need to be respected for that. And we need to stop trying to arrest 12-year-old boys taken out to trash. Until next time.